It's a sea monster. Wait, it's a robot. It's a robotic eel. Oh wow! Coming up on the show today, we've got an incredible story with a team of roboticists who are building one of the first robots inspired by real swimming creatures. But first, we have some new Patreon members to thank. A big thank you to Dodge Comstock, Ben Ustra, and Misha and Marina Simonian. To join these awesome people and maybe give a last-minute holiday gift, pledge at Patreon.com/tumblepodcast. You don't have to ship a pledge. And not only will you get thanked on the show, you'll have special opportunities to record for future episodes and access to all of our episode transcripts and educational activities. Now on to the show. Hi, I'm Lindsay, and I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today, we're diving into the water to discover a new world of robotics. They move like fish, but they work like machines. We'll meet the scientists behind the cutting-edge science of bio-inspired marine robots. We asked some listeners that if they could build a robot inspired by some swimming animal, what would it be, and what would it do? If I was going to build a robot inspired by a swimming animal, I would make it like an octopus so it could grab things. It would be able to pick things up from the bottom of the ocean and bring them up for people to study. I would like to build a robot dolphin that can shoot laser eyes and do karate because it's super awesome. My robot would be a robotic octopus to help the firefighting industry. It will crawl into buildings, impervious to fire, and save trapped people. I'm definitely down for a whole robot aquarium. Yeah, those would be a lot easier to keep in your house than actual living fish. Yeah, could you get like a robot sucker fish? That's my favorite kind of fish. And obviously it would clean up the tank. (laughs) (laughs) Those are all awesome ideas from Alex, Mirabel, and Chaska. And someday they might be reality. Swimming robots inspired by real animals are a new frontier of robotics. We're going to meet one of the first. It's called... Envirobot. Sometimes I spend my time going to the zoo just looking at the fishes and see how they move. I don't get tired, I just always get fascinated by how is the movement so so elegant and synchronized. That's Bezad Bayat, one of the scientists behind Envirobot at L'Ecole Polytechnique Federale de Lausanne. He looks at fish at the zoo very differently from most people. He's wondering how he can reverse engineer those movements and create a world of swimming robots. And that's what he and his team are working on in the lab. What we have here are uh, snake-like robots or salamander-like robots, even swimming cats or dogs. Envirobot moves through water like an eel, but it's made of watertight blocks. It kind of looks like a toy, but inside there's special sensors designed to seek out water pollution. Okay, so obviously an eel that finds water pollution is super cool, but why do they decide on an eel? Well, all water robots are designed with a purpose in mind. 
In general, robots are great at doing things that are physically difficult or dangerous for humans to do. I'm sure there's lots of stuff you wouldn't want to make a person do, like, you know, that episode we did about vomiting Larry, the <laughs> throwing up robots. <laughs> <laughs> but there's also, like, chemical spills or really deep water. But don't we have underwater robots that do that already? Yes, but the current ones are big and bulky, like submarines. A thin robot with graceful, natural movements is sometimes a better fit for tricky jobs. If you want to go inside a pipe, first of all, you might not fit there. You have to make your robot smaller. So what makes EnviroBot better at looking for water pollution than, like, an actual person, like with a test kit? Well, for one thing, a robot doesn't get tired. And there's a lot of water in the world to test. All the water that we drink and swim in and use for farming and a million other things is affected by the environment that it's in. It needs to be tested for toxins to know whether it's safe for us and healthy enough to support plants and animals. So there's not always enough people or money to test it as much as we need to truly understand what's happening. Quality of water has to be continuously monitored and controlled, and if needed, action has to be taken. That's where EnviroBot comes in. Those blocks that make up its eel-like body they're full of chemical, physical, and even biological sensors designed to test the water for all sorts of toxins. Oh, I get it. So uh, EnviroBot goes for a swim and you just sit back and get the data. Yep. Of course, it's easier said than done. The EnviroBot team has been working on this concept for over 10 years. So what were they working on all that time? Just like, can't you just like make an eel? <laughs> <laughs> First, you need to know how an eel swims, or more accurately, a lamprey, which moves just like an eel. <laughs> so I just googled lamprey, and <laughs> I do not see that image and think, oh, that'd be a cool robot. <laughs> yeah, it's basically a tube with an insane, not right amount of teeth <laughs> coming out of one end. <laughs> Alessandro Crespi, another engineer on EnviroBot, says Lamprey's nightmarish looks are actually not why they chose it as their model animal. It looks very creepy, but that's not the part we are imitating in the robot. Uh, what we are imitating from the Lamprey is actually uh, the way its spinal cord works and the way it is swimming. Alessandro is the scientist on the team who's responsible for the way that the robot moves. And that's all based on math. I mean, everything can be modeled with mathematical equations. And in the same way, we can model with mathematical equations what's happening inside the spinal cord of the lamprey. Alessandro studied everything that scientists have learned about lamprey movement. And it's a repetitive pattern curving back and forth. Mm, kind of like a wave. There is a wave of motion that goes from the head to tail, and that's is named a uh, propagating wave. Uh, and that's what m makes the robot move forward in water. He converted that natural wave into a set of mathematical equations that program the automatic movement of the robot. The robot kind of swims without thinking. Hmm. Take notes, kids. Robots need math, and so do you. Well, you definitely need a lot of math to make robots, <laughs> especially to control them. <laughs> yes, you want to make sure you're always in control of the robots, <laughs> lest they become sentient. <laughs> 
So once the team had the swimming motion down pat, they had to get the rest of the design. And that was the hard part. Here's Baizad. So first, you need sensors. That's how robots understand which humans to exterminate, right? <laughs> Not always. Not always. <laughs> These sensors are meant for sensing pollution in the environment and also the basics of getting around. But the first few versions of the robot were too small to fit them inside. The engineers had to revamp the design until it was big enough to get the job done. So these sensors are for helping people. Helping, not hurting. <laughs> okay, so uh, what's next? When you want to go to the lake, you want to go from point A to point B. So you need some sort of uh, localization system. A localization system is like GPS. It tells you where you are and where to go. So you just uh, download the eel version of Google Maps and you're good. It would be uh, eelgle maps. <laughs> you cannot use GPS underwater, so you have to use acoustics, like how dolphins try to communicate with each other. Oh, wow. So it's an eel that does dolphin calls? <laughs> That's super cool. It uses echolocation. That's very cool. All right, so we got our working eel bot. Nope. There's one big problem left, and it took many years to solve. I mean, the first problem you would probably notice is the water leakage. Time and time again, they'll find that water was seeping into the body of the robot. That's a deal breaker, because the robot cannot move, the electronics are going to fail. If you have batteries, there is the risk of battery explosion. Whoa. Battery explosion is definitely something you don't want to risk. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter if you've perfected everything else. If you have a leaky robot, you're not going anywhere. And that's a problem that robots on land never have to deal with. So how did they fix it? With time. So they just sort of waited around and the eel fixed itself? No. There was better technology. As it goes on, you have newer techniques and newer technologies that you can use to your benefit. So finally, 10 years in, they had the tech they needed to make a robotic eel that's watertight. All these uh, different technologies, they have to come together and they need to be able to talk to each other, all these technologies. So it's like uh, the water testing version of a self-driving car. It's actually working on its own, not remote control. Right. And it needs to be able to make its own decisions. So that decision is part of the algorithm which is running on, on the robot. So that's where Alessandro comes back in with a computer code called an algorithm. It's an equation that helps the robot order the information it gets from all its technologies and then figure out what to do with it. Okay, so now that it has all its stuff together, is it ready for water monitoring? The team finally had a version that they could bring out to Lake Geneva, which is beautiful and surrounded by snow-capped mountains in Switzerland. In the beginning, we were always very cautious with uh, not sending the robot too far away from the shore. The robot had worked perfectly in the lab, but in the real world, it would swim a little bit, then stop. It wouldn't pay attention to the algorithm. Each time, the scientists brought it back to the lab and fixed it. Then, one run when Alessandro was out of town. Finally, uh, they were just relaxing on the boat and the robot was doing its stuff uh, alone. <laughs> they were just monitoring on the computer that everything was right. Hmm, that must have felt pretty neat after all that frustration and difficulty to have something succeed. Exactly. Finally, Envirobot had achieved its purpose. 
but it still can't do everything. So it maybe removes the tedious work of going there and taking samples, but once you have found something, the robot cannot know what this something is. You have to go there and see what this is. As the robots can't replace us entirely, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> and unfortunately, they can't solve the problem of water pollution either. It's much bigger than just knowing that the chemicals are in the lake. You have to decide what to do about it, and you have to understand where it's coming from, how it got there, and how it should be cleaned up. Swimming robots are tools we'll be able to use to make a better world, but how we do that and how we build the robots is still up to humans like us. The Envirobot team isn't the only one to have been inspired by nature to build robots. Can you think of an animal or plant or whatever that would make a really cool template for a robot? We'd like to see it. Draw your robot, describe what it does, and send it to us at templepodcast at gmail dot com. Thanks to Bayzad Bayat and Alessandro Crespi, researchers in the biorobotics laboratory at L'Ecole Polytechnique Federale de Lausanne. Also, thanks to our listeners Alex, Chaska, and Mirabel, who contributed some really great ideas. Thanks as well to Melinda Chow and the Austin River Watchers for working with us on this episode. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This year, all we want for Christmas is reviews. <laughs> Sarah Lentz is our editor. I'm Lindsay Patterson, and I write and produce this show. I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I write all the music. Tune in next time for more stories of science discovery.